Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listen, before we start the show today, a quick note. Thanks to you, the ongoing history of New Music podcast has been racing up the podcast charts, and we've been receiving a bunch of email and direct messages from fans of the show that you wanted to hear more episodes. Okay, done. We've heard you, and we're happy to do just that. So we're ramping things up around here. You will now get an additional ongoing history of New Music podcast every week all summer long. So that's two shows for the price of, well, none. So get it. I mean, show is free. Okay, wait. Also, enjoy this week's episode. Here we go. You you know, I I hate not finishing something I start. For example, if I pick up a novel, I'm determined to finish the thing, even if I hate it. But, you know, then I look around the house and I see all the jobs that I didn't complete. Organizing the basement, filing all the CDs and records, that little project in the back corner of the garden that, uh, Well, I don't even remember what I was trying to do there. And then there's my novel. I wrote two chapters in a flurry of creativity years ago and then haven't touched it since. It's been so long that the file was written in Word Perfect. I hope I can still open it because, you know, I'll get around to finishing it one day. All this unfinished business really bothered me until I saw something that made me feel so much better. It was in China. North of Beijing is a giant amusement park that from the highway looks a lot like Disneyland. In fact, it's called Wonderland, and it was supposed to attract millions upon millions of visitors from all across the country. But then in 1998, investors pulled out 120 acres of half-finished, abandoned, fairy tale themed amusement park, empty. Very weird. All this time and money and labor put into something only to never see it actually work out. Which brings me to this. Just because you start on an album doesn't mean you'll ever finish it. And even if you do, it doesn't mean that it'll ever get released. There are actually dozens and dozens and dozens of lost albums sitting in vaults and on hard drives all over the world. Who made them? What happened? Let's take a look. And maybe even a listen. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we are about to embark on a search for lost treasure. Okay, so this stuff may not actually qualify as treasure, but there's no doubt about the lost part. 
Plenty of artists and groups have made or tried to make albums that, for a host of reasons, never ever saw the light of day. Sometimes things just weren't working out and they were abandoned. Maybe the group broke up before it had a chance to be finished. Sometimes the record label moved in and said, wrong, do it again. And believe it or not, just because you have a record contract doesn't mean your record label has to release your record. Let me give you some examples. Ever hear of Pink Floyd's Household Objects album? No? Well, that was supposed to come out the year after Dark Side of the Moon. Never happened. Peter Gabriel worked for years on a record called I.O. and wanted it to come out in 2004. Still not done. What about Reportage by Duran Duran? Scrapped in 2006 after six weeks worth of work. They even had the artwork ready. Guns N' Roses? Well, they were supposed to release The General in 1999, and, uh, well, you get the idea. Some lost albums are still lost. Others, not so much. There's physical evidence that they exist, kind of like pottery fragments at an archaeological dig. And that's what I've tried to collect for this show, traces of albums that never were, at least officially. Let's start with an easy one, and this comes from Weezer. After the success of their debut record in 1994, Rivers Cuomo came up with the idea of a concept record called Songs from the Black Hole. He envisioned it as a science fiction rock opera featuring six characters aboard a spaceship called Betsy 2 and set in the year 2126. The libretto is a bit complicated, but it involves a love triangle amongst the crew, a robot who tries to maintain order, and a baby born in space. The whole thing is supposed to be a metaphor for how Rivers felt about success in the music business, so let's just leave it at that. He wrote and recorded most of the material at his parents' house over Christmas 1994. Some proper recordings were made through 1995, but by fall, it was obvious that things weren't going anywhere. And besides, Rivers had enrolled at Harvard and didn't really have any time for this rock and roll silliness anymore. By the time Weezer regrouped, everyone had lost interest in the project and had moved on, and the result was the Pinkerton album. However, there were plenty of recordings floating about from the Black Hole sessions. Some of the songs were repurposed or released in other forms and other albums, and Rivers released a bunch of this material on two volumes of solo recordings called Alone, the home recordings of Rivers Cuomo. This is one of the longer tracks he made available. It's called Long Time Sunshine. A working sketch of a song called Long Time Sunshine from a never-finished Weezer album called Songs from the Black Hole, recorded in 1994 and 1995, and never fully realized. In the spring of 2005, I met up with Trent Reznor in Los Angeles. He'd cleaned up, dumped his addictions, and had just released the Nine Inch Nails album with Teeth. It was his first album in six years, and I asked him if he had been involved in any other musical projects. Listen to what he said. I was doing some other musical projects, none of which kind of panned out. I mean, the tapeworm thing didn't turn out the way we'd hoped. Worked on Zach De La Roche's record, and that went well, but that's never going to see the light of day, I don't think. I produced 12 Rounds record, but my label was dying, so we couldn't put it out. Okay, in less than 15 seconds, he mentions two lost albums. Let's begin with Tapeworm. 
This was a Nine Inch Nails related side project that existed in various forms from 1995 to sometime in 2004. It was Trent, along with two guys who played in his live band, Danny Lohner and Charlie Clauser. Other people came and went, including Maynard James Keenan from Tool, producer Alan Mulder, and Trent's later soundtrack writing partner Atticus Ross. Paige Hamilton of Helmet was involved, Tony Halliday of Curve, Phil Anselmo of Pantera, Tommy Victor from Prong and Ministry. It's crazy. A lot of people worked on Tapeworm. And Trent talked a lot about the band. There were promises of release dates. In 2003, fans were told that the album was ready to be mixed. And then, nothing. Trent decided to resurrect Nine Inch Nails. Maynard had obligations with his side project, A Perfect Circle. There were fights over creative direction. And then Trent killed everything, saying that the material just wasn't good enough. To my knowledge, there were only two known tapeworm songs. Sort of. I'm going to play you something called Vacant. It was written by Danny Lohner, arranged by Charlie Clauser, featured background vocals by Trent, and lyrics and melody by Maynard. When Tapeworm died, Maynard felt justified in repurposing the song for A Perfect Circle. Now, if you look at A Perfect Circle's 2004 cover album entitled Emotive, you'll find a song called Passive. That's actually Tapeworm's Vacant, after a fashion, anyway. That's a perfect circle with a song they call Passive. Actually, it's an evolution of a never-completed and never-released song by Tapeworm, the industrial supergroup, and its original title was Vacant. As a Nine Inch Nails and Tool fan, I certainly would have loved to have heard more Tapeworm stuff, but like I said, Trent Reznor has spiked that from ever happening. Now, let's go back to that talk I had with Trent. In addition to mentioning Tapeworm, he also talked about the solo record he produced for Rage Against the Machine frontman, Zach De La Roca. Rage was done by 2000. The other three guys recruited Chris Cornell from Soundgarden and morphed into Audio Slave. But Zach was determined to go solo. He got deep into hip-hop and freestyle rapping and started working with DJ Shadow, Dan the Automator, and Trent Reznor on a solo record. The material was good, too, according to Trent, anyway. But for reasons still unknown, the album was never released. Shelved forever. I was so shocked when he said this. I, I just, I wish I had followed up and asked why. But we do have one piece of evidence that the album does exist. In 2004, there was a compilation record entitled Songs and Artists That Inspired Fahrenheit 9-11. One track was from Zach. And it's one of the collaborations he did with Trent. We think it was recorded at Trent's Nothing Studios in New Orleans sometime in 2003. It's called We Want It All. The only known official sample of the solo record by Rage Against the Machine frontman Zach De La Roca, produced by Trent Reznor, too. Damn, don't you want to hear more? I've always found Green Day's story of cigarettes and valentines to be a little sketchy. 
Let me go through it and you can decide for yourself, okay? In 2003, Green Day got to work on making a follow-up to their 2000 album, Warning. It was typical Green Day stuff. Fast, catchy, punk pop songs, more in the spirit of Dookie than anything that they had done in the last couple of years. And things were going well, too. In fact, the album was almost done when one day the band walked into the studio to find that the record had disappeared, gone, vanished. 20 songs, poof. Now, I have no idea how this could happen. Don't tell me that there weren't backups of backups of backups. Were all the master tapes stolen, as one version of the story goes? Did all the digital tracks get erased? I mean, the album was on the verge of being mixed. How could something like this actually happen? See, I don't buy it. I think that Green Day had a hard listen to what they had done and decided that it just wasn't good enough and that they needed to start again, which they did, which led to the American Idiot album, which sold a gazillion copies and eventually turned into a Broadway musical. So, good move then. But what of the music from the Cigarettes and Valentine sessions? Is it truly lost forever? Again, I've got my doubts. In 2003, a weird band called The Network released a record called Money Money 2020 through Adeline Records, which, oddly enough, is a label owned by Billy Joe Armstrong. Now, the network sounded an awful lot like Green Day. Was this actually Green Day performing cigarettes and valentines? Billy Joe says, oh no, but I don't trust him. We'll discuss the network at another time on another show. I can, however, confirm that this song is from those cigarettes and valentines sessions. It's the title track of the album, which Green Day performed live and recorded for a live album in 2011. This is from a performance in Phoenix. Green Day with Cigarettes and Valentines, the title track of the album they claim was stolen right from the recording studio in 2003. You can choose to believe Green Day's claims if you wish, but I remain skeptical. Since we're in a punk frame of mind, let's look at The Clash. In 1981, they needed to come up with an album to follow up on their triple record, Sandinista, and the original plans were to release another double album, just like they did with London Calling at the end of 1979. The working title of this record was Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg. At the time, Mick Jones, the founder of the group, was fighting with Joe Strummer over creative control. A bunch of songs were recorded in New York, but because Jones and drummer Topper Heaton had sunk themselves deep into dub and reggae and other world music, the songs got longer and longer and longer. This annoyed Joe. First of all, it wasn't his kind of thing. And it got to the point where Mick was working on material in one studio and Joe was working on his Clash material in another. And second, after going deep into debt with their label, Joe wanted a nice, tight single album that CBS could promote effectively. Just before the band was supposed to leave on an Asian tour, Mick presented his vision of the project, a 15-track, 65-minute double album entitled Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg. Mick thought it was marvelous. The rest of the band hated it. In April 1982, producer Glenn Johns was brought in to sort it all out. 
He cut and edited and resequenced the whole thing. And the final result was an album called Combat Rock, which was released on May 14th, 1982. But what of Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg? Well, bootlegs exist. And I just happen to have one. One of the big singles from Combat Rock was Should I Stay or Should I Go? This is the original version. Let's see if you can hear the difference with the one that we've heard all these years. The Clash and the Mick Jones mix of Should I Stay or Should I Go from a Clash album that was destined to be released as Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg, but turned into Combat Rock in the end. Never released, but it is why God made the internet. Time to move on to some David Bowie. Through 2000 and 2001, Bowie worked on an album called Toy. We were told it would feature some new versions of some of his earliest songs, along with three new tracks. Release date? Sometime in 2002. But then, nothing. The album is finished, it's ready to be released, but is, for some reason, still on the shelf. Okay, not all of it. The re-recording of his early, early songs, and we're talking about material from the early 1960s, remains officially unreleased. But a bunch of other songs are available either on other albums, as B-sides, or on compilations. Here's one of them. This is called Shadow Man. You can call him Joe, you can call him Sam, you should call and see who answers, for he promises to come running. David Bowie with Shadow Man, originally intended for release, we think, on a 2002 album called Toy, but Toy never came out. It's Bowie's lost album. Still to come, records missing in action from The Smashing Pumpkins and Kurt Cobain. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor. Tell a friend about it. Or rate it on iTunes, if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you'd do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear. Or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right. Let's talk music, shall we? This program features material from albums that are officially lost. Records that were recorded but never officially released for whatever reason. There's a great deal of never-released material from Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins. The man is a songwriting machine, so it shouldn't come as a surprise that there's still lots and lots and lots of material that's never seen the light of day. For example, there was this record. It was supposed to be the Pumpkins' fifth and final studio record in 1999, and it was another attempt at a rock opera. But before the Pumpkins could get around to finishing it and releasing it, they broke up. And it didn't help that their record company didn't want them to release another sprawling album. It was like, look, guys, you did fine with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, so, so take your winnings and just run. Its proposed title was Glass and the Machines of God. Never heard of it? 
Okay, not, not surprised. But if you're a Pumpkins fan, hang on. The material on this record was supposed to be a giant song cycle involving a rock star named Zero, who is renamed Glass by God, his true love, a woman named June, and how they rise, fall, and are redeemed together. The various members of the band would assume the characters portrayed in these songs, and when it was time to take it on the road, it would be presented more as theater than as a concert. But before the album could be finished, bass player Darcy Retsky either left the band or was fired. Depends on which story you want to believe. Guitarist James Eha got bored with the whole thing, so he wasn't exactly engaged. And without two key members, it was pretty much impossible to move forward with this concept where these people had major roles to play. And like I said, their record company wasn't real keen on the whole double album thing, especially since the last album, Adore, which came out in 1998, was something of a commercial flop. In the end, Glass and the Machines of God was abandoned. The best material was then collected into a record called Machina, The Machines of God, in an attempt to salvage something, anything, from the effort. And frankly, that record was okay. Won a Grammy for best artwork. And there was a very cool viral online marketing campaign that encouraged fans to figure out the weird themes and storylines and mysteries contained in the album and the artwork. Now remember, this was 2001. Nobody was doing this sort of thing back then. Unfortunately, that campaign was abandoned before it was properly solved and finished. Machina, The Machines of God, did get a proper release, but ended up becoming the second lowest-selling album in Pumpkin's history. Since then, though, it's been the subject of several critical re-evaluations, and people now agree that it's a pretty decent album. But back to that original project, the original album. Because it was shelved before everything was done, it's tough to figure out what it might have been. Some people have tried to reconstruct it based on leaks and interviews and bootlegs and any other scrap of information they could lay their hands on. The best guess is that Glass and the Machines of God would have been divided into two halves of 14 songs each. Machina, the Machines of God, only has 15 or 16 tracks, so at least a dozen songs from the project are missing in action. Turns out, though, that they're not really missing. In the fall of 2000, the Pumpkins released a record called Machina 2, The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music. It featured much of the rest of the tracks from Glass and the Machines of God and was given away for free online. Again, nobody was doing this kind of thing back then, so it was really cool. There was a physical release, but only 25 copies were manufactured. And where they ended up, no one knows. Let's grab one of those songs from Machina 2. This is called Real Love. The Smashing Pumpkins with Real Love, a song that would have been a part of the song cycle that was Glass and Machines of God, an album that was never finished, but later stripped for its parts. I want to finish with two Nirvana albums. There was supposed to be a record between Bleach and Nevermind, or more accurately, the record after Bleach was originally envisioned as an album entitled Sheep. The best way to think of this album is the record Nirvana would have made had they remained on sub-pop and not lured away to a major label. The band spent a good amount of time at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin with producer Butch Vig in the spring of 1990. Eight songs were finished, 
all with an eye of having them appear on this next Sub Pop record. But then, drummer Chad Channing was fired. Sub Pop ran into money problems, and then they basically sold Nirvana off to DGC for $75,000. The material from the Wisconsin sessions was re-recorded with Butch Vig in Los Angeles and released under the title Nevermind. And we all kind of know what happened next. But we do know quite a bit about what Sheep was supposed to be. If we go into Kurt Cobain's journals, we see that he'd mused over the sequencing of the tracks for the album. Had this record been made in the way it was intended, this track and this recording from the sessions of April 1990 with Chad Channing on drums would have been the way it started. Nirvana and how In Bloom was going to sound if Nirvana had stayed with Sub Pop and released their second album as scheduled. It was going to be called Sheep. That record isn't part of the band's official discography, but thanks to the magic of the internet, it isn't exactly lost. Now, finally, and still on the subject of Nirvana, let's talk about the lost Kurt Cobain solo album. There are all kinds of conflicting stories as to whether Kurt was working on material for himself when he died. Eric Erlinson, former guitarist for Hole, insists that he was. He claims that Kurt played some of these songs for him and that recordings do exist somewhere. They're rough and raw and mostly acoustic, but were in a much different direction than what Nirvana was doing. It could have been his White Album, he told one interviewer. The closest hint we have to what this solo record might have sounded like is a recording called Do Re Mi. Where might Kurt have gone with something like this? We'll never know. Solo Kurt Cobain. What a record that might have been, had it ever been made. I have one more lost album story. It's the second studio album by the Sex Pistols. Now, I know, I know, history records that there was just one studio album from the group, never mind the Bullocks, released on March the 27th of 1977. But there was almost, almost a second record that actually made it into production during one of the band's 1990s-era reunions. Three-quarters of the band went into the studio with producer Chris Thomas and laid down a bunch of tracks. They then put everything on cassette and then slipped it under the door of Johnny Lydon's room and told him to write some lyrics. Miffed that he wasn't involved in the writing and the recording of the music, he refused, or so he says, and that killed the project in its tracks. If you know of any more Lost Albums, let me know about them through my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. That's where you can also sign up for the daily newsletter. It's very good, and it's very free. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.